0: Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Stranger Things, the TV show that began in 2016, created by Matt Duffer and Ross Duffer. I'm joined by the Lessons from Screenplay team, Trisha Rand.
1: Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner.
0: Hello, hello. And Alex Koyotos. Hi. There's a lot of things to talk about with Stranger Things. Three seasons of lots of fun and adventures and I'm (laughs) curious to to hear what all of our reactions are to all the different places that the show goes. And that's one of the things that I love about the show is that it goes to so many places and does Mm -hmm. so many things. I was thinking earlier today about the first time I watched Stranger Things and it was a kind of unlikely viewing for me right because so I I hadn't heard about it that it was coming out at all and then it was just like people on Twitter and friends were like have you seen Stranger Things you should check it out and I was like okay what's it about and they're like well it's like the 80s it's like all those 80s movies and like that (laughs) style and I was like yeah I don't know but they were like no just shut up and watch it okay Uh, and then I watched it and really really enjoyed it super duper won me over so yeah i i want to hear from you guys if you knew anything about it before watching it or knew like what the format was going to be because i feel like this is also one of the early entries into the netflix series Mm -hmm. thing and the idea of dropping all the episodes binge like this is meant to be binged in a very quick period of time so yeah i'm curious like trisha did you know anything about this before it came out
1: um i you know what i actually can't remember. I definitely got on board the train like right away, basically, because um, I was a general fan of like Netflix shows at the time. I was a very big fan of the first couple seasons of House of Cards. And so I was like, oh, Netflix is going to do a cool new thing. And and it checks a lot of my boxes because I like 80s movies. And so <laughs> I was really excited. <laughs> and, and also it should be said, like for all of its flaws, I actually do like Super 8 as well, which is very much doing Mm. you know did the stranger things thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. before the duffers decided to go ahead and do it as well but yeah i i just got on board with it right away binged the entire first season right when it came out did the same with the second and did the same with the third and because the seasons are so short it's like a really good match of like material and that idea of yeah drop the whole season at once um you know, the Duffers wanted this to be more like a movie and mm-hmm. dropping it all at one time creates that feeling where you can just kind of watch it as like a multi-part but long sort of cinematic experience. And it's great. Like, <laughs> I have just so much to say about it. It's really great. It's just one of the more fun shows to for us to get in the second half of the 2010s. It's really awesome that it's been as successful as it has been.
2: Yeah, I want to get into the... Um the sort of releasing things all at once thing later after we've had some time to actually talk about Stranger Things first. But yeah, I was the same as you, Michael. Like I didn't know what it was. I just kept seeing these two words pop up on social media. And it was kind of one of those things where I was like, I, I said this about Ozark a couple of weeks ago where I was like, I'm just going to press play on this thing. I'm not even going to look up what it is uh, mm-hmm. just out of curiosity. So I actually thought it was going to be a outer limits twilight zone style like episodic anthology mm. show the first episode's called the vanishing of will Byers, which very much sounds like a this is this is one episode about this one story and then episode 2 will be about something else also it's 8 episodes which 8 felt feels short based on netflix was doing 13 episode uh, yeah. season episodes at the time and then yeah i just i threw on the first episode and was hooked right away i, I mean i'm a big fan of et goonies stand by me poltergeist like all stuff that i watched a bunch growing up uh so i immediately got that that's what it was going for and just the story itself it just does a really good job of of hooking you into these characters and the story and yes. the sort of mystery and all that kind of stuff so yeah big fan right away and then and then yeah same as you tricia like uh, season two season three just uh, how quickly can i how soon can i watch it all okay the, you know have it all watched by noon today done like
1: (laughs) the the july 4th weekend drop on season three was the move it was really really smart marketing and just smart everything
2: my girlfriend and i got uh, we went out and got like egos and Mm -hmm. uh like kids snacks so we had go waffles for breakfast, and then we started at like noon. And then we had snacks during the day. And then we made like Hawkins Fair burgers for dinner. Uh. Uh, I made two craft cocktails, one called the Demogorgon and one called the Bloody Barb. Um oh. and then- <laughs> Delicious. <Arb. laughs> and then and then we watched the whole thing in one day, which meant like by the time we were on the last episode, like the finale, there were actual fireworks going on around yeah. us. It's just it's so perfect. I will also always associate season three with the huge earthquake that
0: happened yep. in L.A. Yeah. That during the first episode that was for us. Right. Because uh, I remember I luckily paused the the show and it happened during a pause because otherwise I would have right. been very confused for a decent amount of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Alex. What about you? What was your first experience with Stranger Things?
3: Like Trisha, I can't really remember, but I'm pretty sure I was one of the early adopters. Like I, because I was also a big fan of House of Cards and Netflix, I was interested in whatever they were doing next, and yeah, probably the preview played on Netflix, and I was like, yeah. "I'm in."
4: Show me, show <laughs> me this.
3: Uh, and it was just, you know, season one especially was just so pleasurable from the very start. Like mm-hmm. it's very rare that a show from the very beginning is just so. I'm just enjoying every moment of it. There's no, there's no like ease in time with, for me with Stranger Things. Like other shows, it's like, well, be patient, like give it a few episodes. It's going to get better. Like it's be- it's going to become the thing that it is like mm-hmm. slog through. <laughs> None of that with Stranger Things. I'm just, I'm hooked in and I'm enjoying every minute of it from the first episode. Um, And so that was just a really rare experience and was so, such a wonderful surprise when I, when I first watched it.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, and that's, you know, why we want to talk about the pilot, because the pilot Mm -hmm. is so great at setting up all these things so, so quickly, and hooking you in and also showing you the spectrum of places that it's going to go like it just demonstrates that very, very clearly. And so I think that's probably largely what won me over is that it's, you know, people were sort of shortcut saying like, Oh, it's like an 80s thing. But it's not it wasn't just doing like a, you know, we're remaking an 80s thing. It was borrowing elements of that style mm-hmm. to do this new hybrid thing that also had some kind of like fincher-esque cinematography happening and it was this really cool like vision of a horror place and coming-of-age stories all these things just created this cool uh I, yeah i don't know i have a i'm coming up with a really like a stew of happiness that like just wanted to like stew which is brew yeah
1: <laughs> well that was the thing and one of the things that still keeps me fascinated in Stranger Things is the cultural phenomenon that it really just became. Mm. And it managed to hook people who are not fans of the movies or music or things that it's referencing constantly. You know, if you did grow up in the 1980s or grew up with 1980s films, then the homages and references... Are going to mean something special to you but this show managed to get a lot of people who are not fans of that kind of thing and by that i mean modern teens and young people who have not seen a lot of those movies and they still are really into stranger things and that has fascinated me and the and of course like we can get into it more, but just how the young stars of this show just skyrocketed to fame. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is Netflix's like billion dollar IP. They don't, I mean, it is the number one in terms of what they can, like the marketing and the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? All the tie-ins and everything that mm, they yeah. can, that they do with it. It is the piece of intellectual property that Netflix owns that is their big, thing it's their franchise in terms of just money and who could have guessed like why would modern teens and young people watch this show if they're not they didn't live through the 80s and they don't know i have some theories but like it it still doesn't explain all the, the giant mountain of money and fame i don't know it's it's really interesting
3: well i think there's a reason why you know Even if we didn't grow up in the 80s, a lot of our VHS tapes and the movies that made us want to become filmmakers, even if we were growing up in the 90s, like our generation, Mm -hmm. were those Steven Spielberg 80s movies, you know, E.T., all these things that we weren't alive even when they came out or we were just born. Uh, But there's something really special about these adventure films from that time period because of what we, you know, the Deffer Brothers talk about in interviews. They're not these movies that are kids movies where it's right. just meant for kids where it's kind of like nobody curses everything's you know bloodless mm-hmm. so it's very adult like like dark scary things happen Definitely. in these films uh there can be really intense gore actually for what was back then a PG film but it also stars kids and it's it's about usually a group of friends and they are the protagonists and that's something that we kind of lost as i think the rating system got more nuanced and there's more of a division between like these films are for kids about kids Hmm. for kids, as opposed to films that are actually kind of more for adults or older kids. That's also star kids. Um, And I think stranger things brought that back. And I think that just is, that's something we were missing. You know, I I think even if you didn't grow up in the eighties, there's something really fun about an adult story told through the perspective of a group of kids. And, and it just truly hasn't been, out there as much as it once was in that kind of golden
1: Spielberg era
2: yeah yeah I think there's um there's something about references to where you have to be careful in how you do them like you know how many times you've seen a sequel and they're like well I don't know i don't trust horses anymore and it's like this joke only for people who know the <laughs> right. previous movie really well right. or whatever but it doesn't it doesn't mean anything if you haven't and i think that like stranger things does a really solid job of you know if you've seen et then as soon as you see we'll go out to the shed you're like holy crap it's the et shot because that's a shot you see multiple times through the movie if you don't it's, just, it's a kid going out to a shed like you don't need it's not like this shot requires you to have knowledge to appreciate it it's just it's just Cinematography happening It's just Filmmaking happening And same with the cast Like I love You know Winona Ryder Matthew Modine Paul Reiser Mm -hmm. Sean Astin Carrie Elwes Like if you are A Someone who loves That culture of 80s movies and stuff That means a lot to you And it makes this thing Feel like it is I feel like authentic and it's a true love letter rather than just borrowing some style but again if you don't know who any of these people are it's just it's the mom it's the the creepy guy it's whatever you know like it's just these are people in the thing now all that being said 80s stuff is just kind of popular over the past decade or so, you know, and, like, there are kids... Sure. There's been a lot of nostalgia. Right. And, yeah. you know, I, I think about this, like, you know, growing up in the 90s, when I see, like, a 15-year-old wearing a Nirvana shirt, like, my first instinct is like, oh, that kid doesn't really listen to Nirvana. He just thought it was a cool thing or whatever. And I'm like, wait a minute. I listened to Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin in 1995. <laughs> like, you know, it's not... I didn't have to grow up in the 70s to appreciate that. And, like, my friends wore tie-dye and, like, bell-bottoms and stuff. You know, like, culture's sort of come back into into the picture and stuff dazed and confused is one of the biggest movies of you know when i was in high school and stuff um so i think there is that element to it too where it's just like the synth wave retro wave music scene has been really popular for the last 10 years yeah. uh, so i think that even if you don't didn't grow up in that time you don't get like that true nostalgia but you do get a sense of like this is cool like this just feels like a thing that i like right now because this is the kind of music that it that i'm that have been kind of music and kind of visuals that I've been that have been kind of in the zeitgeist recently.
1: Like one of the most interesting things to me about this whole thing, and I ended up writing a whole piece for it um, for Wisecrack. It was on Medium, um, just sort of diving into like why I think kids like Stranger Things. It it doesn't surprise me that the Duffer brothers who were born in 1984 um, and grew up. So they're our age, essentially, and grew up, you know, not necessarily living through like the political and real lifetime of the 80s, but definitely grew up with 80s entertainment, TV Mm -hmm. and film, sort of in the way that we did in the 90s. It doesn't necessarily surprise me that they would think to create this show. And it doesn't surprise me that millennials like us and the Duffers would like it. What does surprise me though is that young people like it. And I I do think you're onto something there, Bri, which is just this kids like things that are retro. Um like we're younger than their parents, right? Like millennials mm. tend not to be the parents of people who are teens now. And so I think that that's part of it. I also think that you're onto something, Alex, though too by just saying, you know, kids like shows that are about kids, like young uh protagonists who are sort of grappling with more adult problems. And It is true that it's not there's like an irony to the way that all of this is presented a little bit, but it's not mean spirited. It's definitely a love letter. It's made with all of this love Mm -hmm. for these things. And so you can maybe imagine modern like middle schoolers watching it and thinking, yeah, this stuff is corny and maybe it's like kind of lame in its own way. But the show is so committed to it and so loving in the way that it treats 80s like culture and nostalgia that I think it does kind of still really hook you. I don't know. What do you think, Michael?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, it, like you were saying, Brian, it functions whether or not you get the references. And I think um, also like we're saying, the, the stories are about like real kid issues like, you know, right. Uh,
1: Friendship and growing up, yeah,
0: right. Navigating high school and like sex and like pulling apart and like it's it's dealing with actual like coming of age things in a not watered down way. Yeah, yes. like against yes. this backdrop of a crazy sci-fi horror explosion of craziness. So so I feel like there is just there's good drama happening that pulls you in, and it's examining a story. And the the kinds of of coming-of-age stories that you were saying, Alex, that we don't really get as much anymore. And it's mixed in with this like loving, fun style, like you were saying, Trisha. So I I think it just has a lot of things really going for it. It doesn't require you to have like a certain point of entry. There's lots of points of entry beyond just the style. And I think that's what's really cool. And I think it's also just a really special you know, a little bit of like a lightning in a bottle kind of thing where like yeah. the, the cast, as we briefly mentioned, like the cast of kids is like so much fun. And like Millie Bobby Brown is cheating. Amazing. Like, where did she yeah. come from? And like in, <laughs> star. like, yeah, yeah, it's just the way it's executed and the fun that just comes from the relationships of all the actors and the kids. It just, it adds so much more on top of what's already a really good foundation.
4: Mm.
2: Yeah. I mean, those kids look like they like, ran a bunch of 80s like child movie stars through a computer and then like found, (laughs) right? just like found four kids who just fit that it's just like it's weird how much they just feel like oh I feel like I've seen this kid in a movie 20 years ago but that's probably not possible but uh (laughs) yeah I also think that like there's something to be said for if you look at the the filmmaking it is it's modern like they're not trying to do this sort of like we're gonna make it look like you're watching through a VHS tape and all that kind of stuff there are reason we don't do certain things anymore in filmmaking and i think that that like they are borrowing from the 80s but they're borrowing the the best things the things that still mm-hmm. feel modern and still feel sort of quote unquote correct to do um and i think like even the music like you know if you look at uh, the the safety brothers good time and um uh, uncut gems like they're using one o oh, tricks point never for their soundtracks it's kind of a similar thing like this this is a kind of music that we in 2020 are used to hearing it's not like Suddenly trying to do this like really wacky thing that nobody's done in a movie for 30 years. It it feels like modern filmmaking, but modern filmmaking that is borrowing from a very specific era.
1: And it was a good call. They were originally going to try to do the monster with practical effects. Mm. And obviously they just didn't have time to do mm-hmm. that. And thank goodness, because if they had really, you know, gone the like Jaws route with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i feel i think it would alienate modern young viewers anyway but also yeah we were talking about like the young kids as the protagonist i was trying to think of examples of like any one of these movies from the 80s that we've mentioned so like jaws close encounters like even something like poltergeist and and some of these more horror ones but et most of them don't have multiple generations of people to follow So Mm -hmm. you either have like the Goonies and it's really just the kids and then they've got Josh Brolin in there, right? Who's like the older teen brother. Um, And I guess he has like the the older girls are there as well with him. So the Goonies is like maybe the nearest comp, but no one's really following the parents in the Goonies as well. That's not Mm -hmm. really a part of the plot. And so to have the like sort of three different steps here where you have like the youngest group of kids, then you have the teens, but then you really have an adult like, sci-fi investigation horror thing with hop and joyce i feel like that is also a reason why you've got to have this you i'm sure you're just going to attract this wide audience
3: when it's also what is uh is possible in the limited series format or yep. whatever this is it, it, <laughs> it it's kind of designed like a limited series but it yeah. keeps having more seasons but yeah the the fact that you can have eight episodes means that you can have full fledged stories in all those different layers that you couldn't do in a 90 minute to two hour film.
1: For sure. This episode of Beyond the Screenplay is sponsored by MUBI, the curated streaming service that premieres a new film every day. So if you've listened to any of my What Am I Watchings, you know that I love to check out films from around the world and classic movies and all kinds of things that might not otherwise end up on my radar. And for that reason, I really love Mubi, even though I actually have a lot of the other streaming services, because the movies that show up on Mubi are surprising and weird and weird. There are really cool documentaries and foreign films, black and white films I've never heard of that have actors in them that I love but didn't know that they made that movie. Everything about it is cool because it's just stuff that you otherwise wouldn't get to see. Each film on Movie is hand-picked. There's no algorithm. It's an amazingly eclectic selection of films from all over the world and from every time period, from old classics to new releases. So, if you ever want to step outside your particular bubble of film knowledge, as I always like to do, Mubi is the perfect place to get started. And you can do so today by heading over to Mubi.com slash Beyond the Screenplay to get 30 days for free. It's M-U-B-I dot com slash Beyond the Screenplay. And thanks to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay.
0: Yeah, it, it is interesting just the way, the the format of the show and how big of a role it plays, I feel like, in, in What Stranger Things. Yes is because like you were saying Brandon, you know house of cards was like slightly longer seasons and still very much felt like a tv show um mm-hmm. like just like a smaller more focused tv show um and and this like you're like you're saying alex it, this felt limited series but also felt like a not yeah it was meant to be binged it was meant to be consumed all as one mm-hmm. unit and it feels like a movie like it it I think that was another thing that grabbed me about it is that it, it felt like a new variation on a bunch of different familiar formats. Uh and that was really appealing. And I think it's it's kind of cool how it's continued that where each season feels like a sequel, not necessarily just mm-hmm. like the next Definitely. season. It's it's like a different kind of thing that they're they're playing with. Yeah. So it's just it's interesting to see how how it's done that and then shows that have kind of tried to do that or or not as much but i feel like this stands as like the the clean good example of an eight hour eight episode definitely
2: yeah absolutely i think it's been really interesting over the past five to ten years to to sort of follow this new way of releasing things like this um house of cards is a good example of I watched the first episode or two and there were there were 11 more hours left and I was like oh this is so much and like maybe like after four or five episodes I would go okay now I know what I'm like rooting for and like wanting to happen and I can keep watching but I remember thinking at the time if this was released once a week I'd probably find that hour a week to watch an episode but because there's 13 hours in front of me I just feel like overwhelmed like I don't want to another not all the like 13 hour shows did that but the house of cards was one where it was just there was so much to follow and it was you know it's not like daredevil or something where it's like well I'm gonna watch like people punch each other so it's fun yeah <laughs> I think it's great to do because I do appreciate being able to make this 10 hour movie eight hour movie and just say this is intended for you to watch it all at once I mean I still think each episode needs to be a standalone episode but you have a lot more leeway to like leave threads open among like across multiple episodes. You don't have to worry like, are they going to remember that character from three episodes ago? Cause it hasn't been three weeks, you know, maybe it right. has depending on who you are, obviously, but like for most people, it won't have been multiple weeks since they watched, you know, a few episodes ago. And of course it allows for this, for these binging sessions, you know, like we talked about 4th of July weekend or whatever, your friends come over, we're going to watch the new season of whatever. And you know, like the little 4th of July party we did. And so, I mean, I love all that. And I think it's great. The downside is it changes. It keeps the show from being on your mind for months the way a show that what we're used to with like a show starts mm-hmm. in September and is, and is on till May or something. Um, I was thinking of The Walking Dead, which is like nobody watches anymore. I don't know how it's still on, but like <laughs> the, the, the structure of the seasons was really interesting because when my friends were watching, it, it was eight episodes in the fall and then eight episodes in the spring. So, there would be eight weeks where the show was on, and you were wondering what hap- what's going to happen next week. And I'm on online forums, and you're talking to your friends about it. And oh my God, like, who do you think is going to show up or whatever? And then the mid season finale would have some cliffhanger. So, then you've got like two months where you're wondering what's going to happen next. And then the season finale would have some cliffhanger. So, now you've got a few months, in- but it's only like a few months away. It's like it ends in April and it starts in October or something. So, you're like, okay, like five, six months. And then we get back into it. And that's cool when a show can. Be on your mind or on like the the audience's mind for consistently for months and months and months now the, all that being said so that's obviously the downside to like you you watch the entire season in a day and now you're, you're done and it's going to be a year or two years until between like the last episode of season one and the first episode of season two it's going to be a year so that's the downside obviously but what a testament to stranger things that given all of that, it still did stay in the zeitgeist, It stayed on our minds throughout the year, even when it hadn't been on in months and months. You know, I just think that's cool. But I just think it's an interesting way to look at how things are released now. Yeah.
3: And I think as we've been kind of implying, Stranger Things is uniquely suited for the Netflix format. Mm -hmm. Whereas House of Cards, I don't think always was, you know, like House of Cards is not a show, depending on the season, that was necessarily that enjoyable for me to like, binge six episodes in one day because it's like can be very dense and convoluted and it's not that
1: fun yeah Yeah. it's
3: it's not always (laughs) that fun sometimes really fun but yeah it it was it was definitely sometimes i would watch a whole season of house of cards and really wouldn't be able to tell you what happened for like large chunks of it you know Mm -hmm. because it became like a weird blur like a binge blur whereas if if i think i had watched some netflix shows over time And not in that binge fashion, I actually may have retained more information because it wouldn't have been all packed into my brain in this binge session. So it's just interesting because uh, I appreciate having access to all the episodes all at once. Like, it's just nice. But there are cultural conversations and just ongoing discussions that aren't going to be had when there's not that like we're all
2: Sunday night going to sit down to watch Game of Thrones or whatever. Right. Right. There were definitely scenes in House of Cards where I'm like, I understand Claire's really upset about what happened and this person's really sorry about what happened. I'm not sure what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Some peace
0: talk broke down or something from some country. Because I think House of Cards was enough of a tv show tv show that they had to start making the episodes while they weren't done writing the season right so it still had that tv show problem where they didn't know exactly what was happening whereas Mm. eight is still a lot but is more manageable to start on episode one and know what episode eight is is going to be and have the arc of that you know the movie the movie arc spread across those eight episodes a little bit more and so i think that's an important distinction too and it is interesting i think in our game of thrones uh podcast we talked a little bit about whether or not that final season of Game of Thrones would have been better if they just dropped it all at once, because I think right. the cultural conversation can be really, really great, or it can right. amplify. <laughs> it amplifies things in both ways, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it did not do Game of Thrones any favors in, in that particular in that, in
3: that final season for sure, right. right?
0: Yeah, but but it is interesting that with Stranger Things, there is just kind of this assumption that like, well, you're gonna. By the end of this weekend, you right. are expected to have seen it. If right. you are going <laughs> right. to engage in culture and things like you know, hashtag justice for Barb can emerge mm-hmm. <laughs> and like become a thing that's part of the conversation, even for this eight episode TV series. So mm-hmm. it 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 really is unique in its place, and I don't think there's really anything else right now that that fits that right. model.
2: I also want to quickly shout out. Uh, Orange is the New Black, which was uh, the other like big kind of cultural phenomenon where like every year when it came on again, like I would be excited to watch it. And, you know, like texting friends, like what episode are you on? Because you couldn't have the like, did you watch last night? Cool. We can talk. It's like, wait, were, you're on four. OK, tell me when you're on, when you're done with six. Like, right.
1: And I will say for Stranger, in terms of Stranger Things, even though it is each season is short, it feels like they cover so much ground mm-hmm. there. It is densely packed in and that's one of the things that i think really hooks people it's like what you were saying alex where it doesn't take a while to get started it gets started yes like the first you know 10 minutes of it will is gone there is a Mm -hmm. monster loose the first scene is the monster is loose in this small town it is it hits the ground running barb disappears and gets eaten by the monster at the end of at the beginning of episode two,
2: disappears at the end, end of two. Yeah,
3: and Eden okay. at the beginning. Disappears of three. at the end
1: of two. Episode three.
3: It's earlier than I thought when I was rewatching it. it.
1: Moves. Yeah, and like the I was expecting the Christmas lights. You know, when I was rewatching, you know, the most iconic, one of the most iconic scenes from season one, where Joyce is talking to Will through the Christmas lights. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's like in episode seven or eight. It's in episode four,
4: mm-hmm.
1: of course, which we can get into later. But not just the um, plot. But the development of the ideas as the premise continues to be explored, it's really quickly like explored and pushed. And this is actually less true of season two, but seasons one, because season two is, is more, it's really interesting. Season two is doing a lot of really good character work and a lot less plot than seasons one and three, but Mm -hmm. seasons one and three are doing a ton of plot. They're doing a ton of character work, but they're also exploring ideas, creating iconic images And pushing the premise out and out in every single episode, they move really quickly. Like, I actually think dollar for dollar, I probably like season three the most, or I just, I have the most fun watching season three, because it is more fun. Like, it's Mm -hmm. trying to be, because it's the summer one, like, (laughs) it's like, oh, it's summer, we're at the pool or whatever.
2: Yeah. I think it's the most polarizing. Huh?
0: I, I feel like saying season three is your favorite is like unpopular opinion territory, but I'm oh, kind of it? in the same
2: boat with you, Tricia. I, I agree. It's a lot of fun. I, Interesting.
1: I think season three is the aliens of Stranger Things and season one is the alien. I think season three is moving more towards like action territory and is like... Season two is
2: like the alien resurrection.
1: <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what season two is. I mean,
2: Winona Ryder's in that one at least, so...
1: yeah. <laughs> Anyway, it just I I think it's amazing how jam packed all of the episodes are. They really <laughs> right. are engaging, start to finish.
0: Mm. I was thinking about season two, and you know this idea of each season is a like a sequel, and season two is doing that middle uh, sequel thing that kind of bothers me sometimes. We're like Temple
1: of Doom, <laughs> <laughs> that thing. <Does> that <laughs> count?
0: Empire Strikes Back, and the Last Jedi, th- like the. The idea that you have to kind of separate all your characters. Like the the end of mm. the first movie is like everybody comes together. Now they're this like new family unit. And then it's like, okay, well we need stuff to happen now. So <laughs> break it apart, send everybody in different directions. Mm. Elle is off doing her thing and she kinda so like that, that one episode or <laughs> she season yeah. two
1: episode seven. Get it out of here. <laughs> <laughs> So it's weird because like
0: I I think it's an interesting episode, but it it feels like an episode of a television series. Like it feels right, out of right. out it's of a bottle step.
1: episode, mm, right?
0: Yeah. And it it does feel out of step in that format of Stranger Things that we're talking like, about. Like
3: there's not bottle episodes in
2: like a big movie.
4: No, <laughs>
0: like, yeah. right? You know, just go away for twenty minutes and do a whole right. other thing and then come back.
2: But I do appreciate that it that it has. Taken the risk to make each season different, so yeah, it would have been easy to make season two just feel like more of the same. But instead, they they did what you were talking about. They introduced new characters. They make people be separated and stuff. And then, if your whole thing about your show is like we're going to release it in October and it's like Mm Halloweeny and dark, like how ballsy to be like actually season three is going to be released on Fourth of July and it's going to be about like a fair, you know? And I just think like that was so cool just to just to have the aesthetic of your show, the the like underlying aesthetic is the same but the the surface aesthetic is totally it's like more daylight and more just like fun and running around and that kind of thing and i just think you may not like every choice they make but i certainly think it's better than just trying to try to like hang on to the thing that you did last time and just try to do it again but now it's now there's more of them or now it's bigger or whatever you know
1: the pool setting in season three turns out to be really menacing And it's a really, again, that interesting unconventional setting for a horror thing. I don't know. It reminds me of our conversation about Jaws when Mm -hmm. like the chaos of the brightly lit beach and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, having this like community pool that, you know, reminds me of the Sandlot and, you know, other movies from that era of like kids playing in the pool. Then to have Billy in the third season, you know, be possessed and and it imbues the setting with a lot of menace and, and same thing with like the County fair and the mall. It is really cool. Season three is just kind of veering into like literal new territory in terms of settings and where things can happen. Whereas season one and season two feel very similar where right. they're, it's all in the buyer's mm-hmm. house. It's all in, you know, it's all in Mike's mm-hmm. basement. It's all in the woods and the Hawkins lab and everything. And then even season three, like one of my favorite things in season three is the set piece in the hospital with Mm. Nancy and Jonathan getting chased around by their bosses from the, from the newspaper who are, you know, possessed by the mind flayer. Um, It's really interesting to see season two does like a deepening of what season one is. Whereas season three makes a sharp turn. And like you're saying, Brian, that's a really interesting, brave, cool choice. At that point, I've looked and looked. I don't, I cannot find the budget for season three. It's not Mm. on the internet (laughs) and it's driving me crazy because it's so obvious they had so much money by comparison (laughs) to the first two seasons. Like season one, they were, they were, had the budget of like about six million an episode, five, six million per episode of season one. Season two is about eight million per episode. And no one has published the budgets of season three, but you can just tell they're astronomical.
0: That's how big. I mean, they built a mall. Oh my gosh! Right? Well, they converted a mall, but right. yeah. Mm. Anyway, and I like that that it's they they still ground it to character yep. development things yep. also. So mm-hmm. it's like it takes place at a mall. Like that's one of our central places, and so there's you know the background and the cultural changing of America and all the things that are like commenting mm-hmm. there. But it's also like the kids are teenagers and they want to go to the mall and like you know get their hair done and like they have summer jobs and like all these things that. I feel like the settings match the evolution and growth of, you know, our heroes as they're slowly inching their way toward adulthood or whatever.
1: Yeah, they're not going to go back to the arcade at that point.
0: Right. Yeah. And so and it just feels like a really good setting for the interpersonal drama to be taking place at, as well as a really cool setting to have like monsters chasing you. And, In the mall. Yeah. Malls, malls are fun to blow up. I thought I hear a knocking on my door. <laughs> yeah,
3: I don't want to like rag on season three too much, but just to offer kind of what I found that didn't work for me about season three was I felt like in the second half of the season, I really enjoyed the turns it took and the new settings and the teenager stuff and the new kind of like colors and color palette and daylight. I did feel like the all the like the Russian base and like the the like kind of almost um like, screwball comedy of yeah. uh, Winona Ryder and Hooper, like, I don't, it kind Hopper. of, Hopper, Hopper, sorry, uh, <laughs> and what's Winona Ryder's name in the, in the show? Joyce. Joyce. The kind of screwball comedy of, like, Joyce and Hopper, like, it it, got, it kind of wore on me, like, I was kind of exhausted, like, they were bickering for so many episodes in such, like, an almost over-the-top way and then it's like, you're, you would love each other, actually. It, it it didn't feel as honest to me as season one. Where, like, mm. in season one, it still felt like even though we're doing a slightly heightened reality, we're doing crazy government experiments and we're doing all these, you know, fun 80s things, it still felt very grounded. And the emotions felt grounded. And I, and I really yeah. understood all the characters' motivations and where they're coming from. In season three, it felt a bit more showy. It's like, we're just kind of, like, doing stuff. And it's going to be loud and big and, you know... We're going to have these characters yell at each other for no reason for like five episodes straight. And I think that is where I kind of got like a little bit fatigued by the show. Whereas season one, and then season two is a little murky in my mind, but season one especially, I think I was so captivated because it it was doing all of these things at once. It was a kind of a grounded drama at the same time as being a heightened retro sci fi horror. Um, And season three felt a little bit shallower for me in that way, where it it just got into the, the wacky Russian adventure and the wacky all this stuff um so that was my that that was kind of where i bumped for season three and why by the end of it i was kind of like that was a lot and i'm you know it's over now and that was a fun finale but i'm not sure that i like enjoyed the ride every step of the way the same way i had in previous seasons
2: yeah i, I think that that's fair and I, I don't disagree um i also think it's one of those things where once Once they got you, they got you, and if, yeah and and that works for some people and not for everybody, but like for me, I was just like i'm kind of happy for stranger things to do like literally whatever it wants <laughs> I'm just gonna have fun with it, and that doesn't mean I'm going to argue that the choices are good or that you know that everyone should like it or anything like that, but I think I do think that. This show did strike that right chord with me where I'm like, like, look, when Dusty Bun and Susie Pooh start singing Neverending Story, I started bawling. I was like, this is the most beautiful <laughs> moment ever. <laughs> and it's so stupid. It's like, it's like literally they're being chased by this giant monster, and you have <laughs> Hopper and Joyce are like like Joyce like turns her head and she like like face palms basically. Yeah. But I'm just like, this is the most gorgeous thing I've seen on a show in forever, and I'm so happy. But again, like it's tonally bizarre to suddenly, sure. in this like very dire, we all might die moment, we're going to have like a little musical number. So I agree with you, Alex, that it, it is a little, it is more showy and less grounded. But it's also one of those things where I'm just like, you took, you took this chance that I was going to love this and I did. And not everyone's going to, but like those are the moments that can be the most beautiful sometimes is when you do, do, you do that thing that for 20% of your audience, they're going to lose their minds
1: it's a bit of a tightrope walk in terms of actually hitting the emotional core of the characters here because obviously the show is doing sci-fi and action and horror and it doesn't leave a lot of often those genres don't leave a lot of room for like real character moments um, you know when it comes to themes like family and death and like, I don't know, just thinking about the, the running story of, of the death of Hopper's little girl um, prior to the start of the show and how, you know, Eleven comes to be this role. That's like a really complex, you know, grief like is a huge part of that and the unhealthy coping mechanisms that we see from some of the adult characters and the the, the um, real real life growing pains that the kids go through so thinking about in the first season when they find what they think is Will's body in the quarry and how really emotional that is, even though we as the audience know that he's not dead and we believe in Joyce um, and we we know that the Upside Down is a thing and we know that there's a monster and we know that Eleven is here and and we trust that Will didn't just Get lost and accidentally fall into a quarry and drown because that's really dark. I feel like that is a really perfect encapsulation of where the show kind of goes at its best, where it's able to hit on this like human darkness and this human drama in addition to being about all of this, like, you know, extraterrestrial or sci-fi or whatever stuff. And season three, because it is playing so fast and loose with a lot of the like cultural, I don't know, I was going to say zings and zaps. I'm not even sure what that means.
3: <laughs> that sounds right for season three. But right,
1: yeah. that how season three feels? It's got yeah. all those zings and zaps in it. Um, but in as much as it's hitting all of those as hard as it can and doing the thing you're talking about with like, it's the funniest season easily, right? It's just sort of mm-hmm. the goofiest season. And when it tries to hit, goes to those dark places with Billy, when Billy's like a kid on the beach and, and, you know, Billy is the victim of abuse. And that's why he like abuses the people in his life and, and that stuff. That's a little bit, I mean, it's just, it's a really hard tightrope to walk. So, and I, I feel like they mostly pull it off, but it is, it is, you're getting closer and closer to the edge of like, what is corny and like, what is real? And that actually keeps me emotionally hooked in here.
0: Right. And and I think that there's some of that, probably my the forgiveness that I extend to creators that are having to make sequels to their Mm -hmm. beloved perfect things comes into play here because there isn't a ton of room to keep expanding. I I, like even at the end of the first season, I was like, Well, where are they gonna go with this? Like what can happen next? Mm. And season two you know, leans on the character development a lot more. And so it's more about like them and and that kind of evolves and introduce new characters and that complicates things. And that's cool. And I think for me with season three, I kind of appreciated that they communicated to me as a viewer anyway, that we're not going to worry too much about the logistics of, is this all going to make sense and plug in because it doesn't and it won't. So we're gonna have. We got the rats. We got the
3: bodies. We got the meat m- monster. Right of all the yeah. bodies.
0: Like if you start <laughs> thinking about any of it too hard, it doesn't super duper make sense. Nope. And so I appreciate that they're like, well, we're gonna have fun at least. Like we're gonna keep enough of that there that it's you know compelling, uh and then we're gonna kind of double down on the stuff that we know we can keep. Expanding on and playing with and watching those characters evolve and grow up is ultimately the thing I feel like I care about more at this point, anyway, than like the upside down mm-hmm. and the, sure. the swirly smoke monster slash goo and the Russians monster and they're Russians the Russians now yeah. also the evil like-
1: Russians, yeah a very unnuanced look at some, <laughs> right, evil, right. at some evil russians which made sense in 1985 yeah. and kind of doesn't now i mean
3: it's, it's the very much the like 80s russians you know yeah, right, they, right, i guess they can exactly. get away with it because they're just they're doing the retro 80s thing
1: yeah it's red dawn basically
2: and kind of rocky four and kind of the terminator like weirdly right. <laughs> right yeah season three has like the terminator guy
1: yeah
3: one of the things you were saying earlier, Trisha about season one and how you know, they waste no time. And every episode is like pushing the world further and further. Like they pack so much into each season. They don't, they don't leave a lot of stuff you know, for the future. Like it's like, they're telling a full story right now, right here. And even season two, it was kind of funny how it's like poor will is just once again, the vessel for the upside mm-hmm. down. Like he becomes yeah. like a basically a body through which like dark stuff happens. Um, that it's kid just, is so good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he is. But yeah, um, everyone is. Yeah. It's like season one is such a perfect package. You know, it is, it is, it's a full complete movie that has everything I want in this kind of movie. And so it's hard. It's like, yeah, there probably is no sequel that's going to please me because season one already gave me exactly what I wanted. And so every sequel is now going to be something else. Kind of a spin off on whatever the origin was, but it's not going to be the thing that I definitely a 100% love through and through, which is season one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just what it is. And I, and I can appreciate and enjoy these weird spin off worlds as they keep going because they're going to keep going.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Season two becomes almost like an exorcist version of like yes. a horror movie instead mm-hmm. of, I mean, it's still definitely a monster thing because they have this demo dogs. Yeah, um yeah, that right. are everywhere
3: <laughs> <laughs> the demodogs
1: yeah exactly but yeah it, that's I guess that's what I mean when I say that season three is like the aliens where the mystery part is kind of gone mm-hmm.
4: like mm-hmm. there's not really
1: a mystery now about the upside down what is it what lives there we know it's the mind flare it's totally evil and we also know the way to beat it you close the gate like <laughs> That's a, yeah. there's there's one way to do it. They and keep closing
0: it to yeah. close the damn gate. Right,
1: they just
0: keep closing the gate.
1: So yeah, the and that's what I mean. I guess you know, just agreeing with what you guys are saying. Season three is a different thing because the mystery part is gone. So they really are just kind of turning up the. So have let's have fun watching the characters that we know, like may, meet this new challenge, but not there's not the same sort of like creeping dread or horror kind right.
4: of right they right. just had
1: the, and they turn up the gore in a way that i think is interesting with that meat monster yeah um,
3: man yeah a lot of meat going around
1: so much of it <laughs> but but yeah it, it it definitely isn't treading on the same like hair standing up on the back of your neck thing that season 1 and season 2 are really really great at
0: yeah mm mm-hmm. Another thing I was thinking about is just like, how do you manage a cast of characters that's this big? And I think that's... Well,
1: you split them up. Right.
0: You, yeah. you split them up. And then I wonder if it's like, at some point, you need to kind of start pruning. Like, I'm I'm wondering in if season four, we're going to kind of like, lose some people along the way. Because that, that was one of the things for me in season three that was hard is that I felt like I was tracking a lot of people. And occasionally there were scenes where it was like, I don't think everyone... Has something to do in this scene. Like, I think mm-hmm. some people are just here to be here uh, because they have to be somewhere on screen. <laughs> right. Uh, and then, like, you know, introducing Maya Hawk's character, Robin, was awesome. Like, she's great. Like, she and Steve have a ton of fun, but it's like, okay, now there's another person. And then, like, Lucas's sister is now also here. Mm-hmm, and, like, yeah, true. And now Dustin has a. So there's like, it's fun. And I think all the additions add things. At a certain point, it's too much to hold. So I'm curious to see how you do that. that that's
3: part of the fatigue i think i felt you know I, I think it was just like i i the show's asking me to be invested in yet more relationships and more characters and i i think i was just growing a little bit weary like this is just expanding outward and outward where does it end
1: well it is the imperative of having this like sort of big essentially ensemble cast And the thing about season one is that they're able to because no one knows what's happening but everyone's invested in the mystery of what happened to Will in different ways the show doesn't have to do any work to split them up they're naturally split and then it brings them together at the climax season 2 has to do the work to split them up and as we talked about it does feel like work right where <laughs> right. they yeah where Nancy and Jonathan like go off to meet Murray and like expose what happened to Barb and which, which is great you know but then you have to split the different characters off um, and it it starts to feel like they're being moved around on a board. Season three feels even more like that. So part of me does wonder if season in season four, because half the characters moved away Mm -hmm. to a different town at the end of season three, Uh if we might be following both sets of people that are still in Hawkins and people that are not, the buyers and Elle who moved away, and then we'll just be following them separately and then they may, you know, something Probably something involving the upside down is going to like bring him, <laughs> bring him back or the Russians or, you know, hop because he's over there. Um, yep. Yep. <laughs> he's way over there. Uh, <laughs> and so we're going to have to bring him together for that. But, you know, it is like as much as it is, it's just smart narrative work actually to split him up and to lay the groundwork. If you pretty much know at that point, you're going to have a season four, which the Duffers did because Netflix right. wanted to shoot season three and four back to back to keep the kids young
0: interesting they are getting pretty old at this point
1: (laughs) right so you know they but but i actually think it was the right call the duffers really wanted to get season three right and spend the time developing the story and shooting it and making you know not splitting their focus with season four it is smart to lay the groundwork with season four by splitting all the characters up at the end of season three i don't Mm. i would be very surprised if at the beginning of season four they're just all in the same place again sure I'd be right, even more be shocked weird. if that place is Hawkins because I I feel like we're going to spend a decent amount of time outside of right. Hawkins in the next season.
0: Exhausted Hawkins quite a bit at this point. Yeah.
1: I mean, I love Hawkins, but...
0: The world can only end so many times there. <laughs> right, right.
1: <laughs> For real.
0: Do you ever find yourself listening to our show and feeling like you want to chime in? Yes. <laughs> Maybe you want to share your thoughts on Kurosawa with Brian or pick on movies that aren't fun enough with Alex or nerd out about historical fiction with Trisha, or simply tell me that all my opinions are correct and should be taken as fact. Wow! Whatever it is, <laughs> you can now do exactly that. Our highest tier on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon lets you join our monthly film club video chat. Each month, the four of us join a group of patrons to chat about movies. Recent topics have included The Matrix and Jaws and Christopher Nolan's filmography There was a lot of opinions on that one. (laughs) Yes, there were. <laughs> there were. And actually, the discussion made me want to revisit Dunkirk, which I never thought I would want to do. Wow. So it's lots of fun. Patrons join the chat from all over the country and all over the world. We've had people join from South Africa and Sweden and Australia. There are also patrons of all ages, from adults with kids to literal kids. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, you. I know you're listening. I don't remember exactly how old you are, but you're too young to be a person. Anyway, it's a lot of fun. It lets us truly get to know you better. And and vice versa. And it really, really helps support the show. So head to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon to join our monthly film club video chat. We hope to see you soon. Awesome. Well, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take away from Stranger Things. Brian, do you want to start us off?
2: Uh, sure. There's the um the quote that you guys had found from the Duffer Brothers that annoyed me, which was <laughs> <laughs> that not 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 them annoying me, but the circumstance annoyed me. Which was they said they took Stranger Things to different networks, and the networks kept saying like, "Well, is this a kids thing or is it this adult horror thing? It can't be both." Which, first mm-hmm. of all, I'm like, "Do you even eighties, bro?" Um, <laughs> but like, I, I just it annoys me that they're, they're sort of like trying to fit things into these. Little boxes, you know, like, oh, it has to be this kind of thing. And I was just thinking, like, think about whenever you see a billboard for, like, Gerard Butler and Gabrielle Union in Dire Consequences or Deadly Threat or, you know, Precarious Corridor, whatever. Like, um, (laughs) it's just like, you know, what's what's Netflix's new thing? Project Power, you know, and it's just like... (laughs) And you look at that and you're just like, this looks like a bad version of a movie I've seen a hundred times before. Like, this doesn't look like anything new. Why would I bother? And of course, some people do want that. Some people want to see the same thing over and over again. And that's fine, I guess. But like, generally speaking, it's not the next great thing. It's like, you know, that movie you saw last year, we did it again with different uh, different premise but and different actors. It's like, nobody wants that. But then now think about every time you discover something you love and you're trying to explain it to somebody. All you end up doing is you talk about the multiple things it's like, how it's kind of like this, but also like this. So, you know, if you're, you're going like it's kind of like if David Fincher made a James Bond movie, but set in the dystopian science fiction future. Michael, check. Trisha, check. Alex, check. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, <laughs> and, but like, but you know what I mean? It's like you're always going like, oh, it's kind of like the cool thing that we love about this, but also the cool thing we love about this. And it just annoyed me that the networks were like, it can't be multiple things. It has to be one simple thing. And it's like, screw you. Granted, sometimes movies can be too many things at once. I've definitely walked out of movies where I'm like, it was trying to be too many things. So you have to find That balance and you have to make sure that there is cohesion between these elements but ultimately my my lesson is like don't settle for making the same thing someone else has already made find make the thing that feels uniquely you and borrows from the things that you love and if the studio or network says it has to be just one of those things throw waffles in their face find your netflix That's yeah. good, good career advice
0: yeah, yeah. i always bring waffles to your pitch meetings in case you
2: have to <laughs> throw them in the producer's face in yes. case you have to pitch them in the producer's no. face i don't know why the stranger <laughs> things theme kicks in there but it just felt right
0: it's the mic drop awesome alex what about you
2: so
3: we kind of mentioned this earlier or brian you mentioned this about how they didn't didn't shoot this show as if it was shot in the 80s you know they didn't use 80s right. technology they didn't because mm-hmm. that is a the thing there is there's there's like two different versions of this retro wave where it's like we're literally gonna make a thing look like it's 30 years old like or 40 years old intentionally we're like we're gonna take our like better film stock we have today and like muddy it up in post to make it look worse because we love what it looked like in the 80s and there's a time and a place for that. Like there's, there's some fun, like music videos are just like, there, there, there are reasons to do that. I think that it's so much more interesting and so much more engaging and entertaining to do what the Duffer Brothers did, which is they, they managed to make a thoroughly modern show that is their own style, that is their own voice while integrating mm-hmm. their nostalgia for this era of film. And I think that's just so much more interesting And so much more accessible. There's things like we talked about in our rants uh, for patrons on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There were elements of that film that really only had meaning if you were clued into the cultural or Mm -hmm. the references that were being made in that film. They they were essentially meaningless if you did not have access to those references. Mm -hmm. Whereas this film has all those references or film series, but it feels like a film. Stranger Things has all those references built in for people like the Duffers who love that era of of cinema. But you don't have to know a single reference. I'm pretty sure my husband doesn't know a single reference in <laughs> in this series, but he loves Stranger Things. And it's because it's a thoroughly modern, entertaining, great show. Yeah. So, so I think it's just a great lesson because I think there's so many people that do have a nostalgia for the 80s and 90s, especially in our generation. And I think there's a temptation... To just think that if I make a thing like there is there is some kind of value in just making something look like it was made in that time. And I think it's much more interesting to do what the Duffer Brothers did and much more uh, enjoyable by much more people than just people who are also as nostalgic as you are for a very particular thing.
2: Yeah, there's like a. A thing that happens sometimes where someone will say, I'll say, like, I'm not a big fan of musicals. And you're like, oh, well, you should see this musical because it's a parody of a musical. Like it does all the bad things. And I'm like, so you're saying it's still a bad musical? And they're like, yeah, but it's <laughs> funny. And I'm like, right, but I don't want to watch that. Like where you're trying so hard to be the thing that you just end up being the thing. And I'm like, right, right. but if I don't like the first thing, I'm not going to like the. Right. So yeah, it's, it's exactly what you're saying.
0: And I feel like that's how you push the medium forward also. Like, right. I think that's probably what irk's me sometimes it's like well we already did that like we don't let's not just do it again let's find a cool way to identify what was great about that and apply it to where we are now and like take a step forward
3: it's like if if i want to watch a movie that looks like it was made by Steven Spielberg in the 80s i i can probably just go watch a Steven Spielberg movie made in the 80s and it would probably right. be, be better
0: <laughs> we have right. yeah. yeah yeah there's
1: there's a self awareness to stranger things that makes it right. palatable mm-hmm. right
3: yeah and and just once again, a modern sensibility from the music to the editing, to the cinematography. Like it's not it's not pretending like this was made 40 years ago. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. There's also uh, this is a tangent for another time, but I've been thinking a little bit about the 80s and the nostalgia thing. And there's there does seem to be a weird kind of cyclical. A lot of the things that began in the 80s have reached their full maturity now. And so like the sort of synthy electronic music that was in then that was new like is like we're still doing that like there's still a place for like that the i guess it's the technology that began in the 80s that influenced a lot of culture has reached its maturity Mm -hmm. now ish along with kind of our generation and so like video games and music Mm -hmm. and like camera technology and like all these things have kind of all like matured and i feel like that that also lends just like a an extra specialness i think of like why the throwback to the 80s stuff works so well it's like the origin right now the origin of all
3: the things that are such a part of our lives
0: in some ways yeah but maybe that's just because i'm was born in 86 and that's what i think i don't know um trisha what's your lesson
1: all of this actually ties into my lesson which is sort of about the iconography of american cinema Um, (laughs) i like said it anyway uh but
0: (laughs) i was thinking it yeah
1: good it's interesting what you guys were just talking about has to um reminded me just of the decade of the 1980s 70s and 80s but really how um cinema was basically being american cinema especially was being dramatically reshaped by you know Particular filmmakers, um, and we've talked a decent amount about blockbusters and what those looked like and meant, and high concept movies and and what those looked like and meant. And so that's really what people were studios were spending their money on in the nineteen eighties. And the thing about a high concept movie is it has this iconography to it. A high concept movie is supposed to be condensable into one sentence and um, sort of digestible in an iconic image. And so when you think about ET, what you essentially see as a bicycle against the moon right Mm -hmm. Spielberg is great at this he's like maybe you know one of the best ever it's a shark fin in the water it's it's just a striking iconic image and Stranger Things is really good at doing that the Duffers did a spectacular job at lifting these images and and often in the same way that Spielberg did, which is take something familiar to us and put it somewhere new or make it like dark or sinister. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the thing about a bicycle against the moon is that a bicycle is not supposed to be in the sky. It's it's some it's an object that's instantly recognizable, but where it is awakes our imagination. And the duffers are great at this.
2: Christmas lights. Um,
1: Christmas lights, exactly that. Waffles,
2: blonde wigs, and pink dresses Like you put those three things together, done. A
1: baseball bat (laughs) with nails through it, right? It's like they do a really, really good job of knowing how to put the ingredients together to make an iconic image. And it has to do with that mixture of familiarity and like newness. That being said, I won't spend too long on this, but I also think that's the same reason that the redemption of Steve Harrington is one of the best things about this show Mm. because they introduce him as something familiar and then they lift him out of that into newer places and newer places his role starts to like shift in a really iconoclastic way where he's moving into different spaces where he starts off as just this douchebag boyfriend that jock that we're supposed to hate and then he moves in season two to be like this completely different unexpected character and ally even by the end of season one he's he's doing something different and I think when you think about what shows and and big high concept movies do at their best they give you shorthand for something that you recognize and then they put it somewhere totally that you don't expect it and I feel like they do that with with Im- the duffers do that with images. They do it with characters as well. Steve's the, the best example of it that I can think of.
2: Well, rewatching season one, I also appreciate that Steve is like, yes, he's a dick and yes, he's that douchebag boyfriend, but like he is like there are moments where he is caring and there are moments where he's smart and that so it's not this complete 180 to turn him into like a a good guy later on because right. it feels like he isn't just this two-dimensional like douchey boyfriend that he is just there so we can have you know uh, jonathan punch him in the face at the end and run away with nancy or something <laughs> like that you know he's there he's more of a of a real, well-rounded character
1: yeah and i do wonder i know that the duffers have said that the roles were being cast as they were writing and mm. so that the the young actors especially that they ended up casting did bleed back into the roles or they helped to shape where the characters went i wonder how much joe curie and just how charismatic and interesting he is, like, managed to affect what happened to Steve Harrington mm. um, throughout the course of this series. But yeah, it's it's really interesting. And um, that that spirit of the 1980s, I feel like that's what's coming through. Yeah, for
0: sure. And his chemistry with the kids, especially Dustin. It just oh, is, yeah. It's so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <What> a joy. <laughs> let, let them go. Let yeah. them go and be extremely entertaining. Yeah. My lesson is sort of, we talked about earlier of this idea of um, having storylines with different groups of characters that span these different ages. Like I think the more we've, we've talked about that, the more I realized that that is a really interesting thing that not a lot of shows do. So we, you know, you have the adults and the teens and the kids and uh, a good friend of mine just finished watching dark last night. And so I was talking to him about dark. And I think that's one of the things about dark That made it feel a little stranger thingsy in some ways, because there is like the adult storyline and like what they're dealing with and how hard it is to be a parent and all these things. And then you have the kids in high school and they're dealing with high school things and all of them are dealing with time travel. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like the stranger things too, where they each of these groups has their own kind of uh, immediate concerns and they're all tied together through this bigger concern. And I think that that's just a really cool mechanism for creating different kinds of drama that can yeah go go to different places when you need it to like you can use one to create levity when other things are really serious and i don't know i think it's just it's a cool dramatic setup um to give yourself when, when creating a story especially something that is ensemble like this that's going to go on for episodes and episodes like it's just a, a rich grab bag of, of characters to have so definitely yeah why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? trisha going back the other way
1: i've been on a kick recently where i've been watching a lot of let's hear, um, it.
0: Let's hear <laughs> it what's the kick uh-huh I, uh oh, hold on can we can we can European we guess
1: psychological thrillers
0: oh that's what i was gonna guess so, yeah. you know. i i um, love
3: how it's always at least like three adjectives to describe <laughs> like the binge that you're on currently
1: thank you so much uh yeah so i've been watching a lot of these from recent years so like I- in the last Three, two, three years, movies that have come out that are kind of set in Europe, usually with European actors um, and are doing like a psychological thriller thing. But the best one that I've seen, or I don't know, just one of the most interesting ones that I've seen is a movie that actually came out in 2020 (gasps) called The Burnt Orange Heresy. Um, It came out, God bless it, March 8th of Mm. 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Poor, poor this movie by an Italian filmmaker named Giuseppe Capatandi. Let's go with that. Starring Elizabeth Debicki and Donald Ooh. Sutherland, wow. and uh, a Danish actor named Klaus Bang, and Mick Jagger.
4: <laughs> what, of course.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's like an art, like forgery heisty kind of thriller. It's very talented, Mister Ripley, which is definitely my jam. It's just kind of an interesting modern take on on this genre. You know, it's just got this really small cast. It's really contained. It's basically, it basically all takes place at Mick Jagger's castle in Europe. And he plays this eccentric art collector. (laughs) He plays an eccentric (laughs) art collector. So essentially he does play himself. But anyway, I just thought it was really interesting. And, And if you like this kind of, yeah, psychological thriller where everyone's a con man maybe and everyone has like hidden motives and there's all of this art and no one really knows, you know, there's a debate about what is forgery and what is genius and what does it mean to be perceived by the public as being a genius? And and there's all these different, you know, motives and everything like that. I don't know. It's just, it's a really interesting movie that I liked and felt it. It's certainly not perfect, but didn't deserve to get buried under COVID all the way <laughs> as much as it did.
2: <laughs> Sounds like a movie Michael would like. Yeah. March 8th is also my dad's birthday. So I think there was a lot of attention Put to that too. Uh,
1: ah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it definitely right. got lost in, yeah. in the celebration of your dad's birthday, Brian.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Alex,
0: what have you been watching?
3: Uh, so we've been watching the Netflix docu series "Challenger: The Final Flight" Ooh. about the Challenger explosion. Um, okay. very interesting, especially you know it happened like I think it was like the year before I was born. It, it was it's such a fascinating look at what that cultural moment was because mm-hmm. up until that disaster, um there was this amazing like uh, acceleration of space flight. And we're going to send up, you know, hundreds of flights per year. We're going to start taking civilians up into space. Like there really was this vision of like a spacefaring future just right around the corner. And, you know, this was this moment that was highly publicized because they had a teacher, a civilian teacher on board the challenger for the first time ever. So it was one of the most widely watched of those like, mid eighties, uh, launches. Yeah. And the, and the trauma of that event is like such a cultural moment. Um, so yeah, for somebody who wasn't, you know, alive and conscious during that cultural moment, it's, it was really interesting to kind of see the context around it and also get the human story of the astronauts that were on the, on the challenger. So not, you know, not like a fun watch, but really interesting and really good context for like what happened to our aspirations to be kind of the space faring civilization people were talking about up until that launch of like kids have to be educated about space because they're all going to be on space stations. Like when they're adults, like people were really optimistic about the future of space travel and this and just shows how one moment can change everything.
4: Mm-hmm. So
2: very interesting. Brian, what about you? What have you been watching? Uh, I will see Alex's uh, Netflix docuseries um, and raise him a high score appropriately to stranger things the
1: i have watched that
2: wow nice it's
1: great yeah it's about the history of video games
2: correct (laughs) trisha why don't you tell everyone what i've been watching you watched the thing about video games
1: i did it's really cool brian tell them about it
2: i will Uh, i'm excited um yeah it's it's about the sort of the origin of the video game industry like creation of space invaders pac-man doom the nintendo sega war like all that kind of like early 90s late 80s kind of thing and it's really fun and quirky like it's very unashamed of just having fun with like they'll get the the interviewees to like do little skits and stuff and it's it's like awkward but in just an adorable way and they have they do these Retro graphic montages that are so cool. Mm-hmm. So someone will be telling a story about like, well, I had to go to Japan and da-da-da. And then you see what I thought was like, I'm watching footage from a video game, but it's like, oh no, they made this like super NES style montage to show this guy going off on whatever adventure he's telling you a story about, which is just really cool. And uh it does a really surprising and cool representation thing, too, where it's like highlights a lot of people from different like marginalized communities and shows the impact they've had on the birth of the video game industry which was like just kind of like totally unexpected you're like oh okay i'm gonna watch a bunch of like old white and japanese men doing this thing and suddenly you're like oh here's this like trans woman who won the space invaders uh thing and this gay black man who like had this huge impact on you know it's just like it was really neat to um to see that kind of and of course they talk about how what it means to them to to like be able to play a game and sort of see Mm themselves, you know, represented or see them or be able to sort of like escape from like issues they're having and that kind of thing. So yeah, that was just really sweet and unexpected. And then as a digestif, we watched The Wizard, the 1989 movie with Fred Savage, Jenny Lewis, Christian Slater, Beau Bridges about a child video game prodigy who travels to California to compete in this big tournament, which a movie I had on VHS and loved as a kid. And my girlfriend and I were both like, 10 times during high score we're like oh it's like the wizard oh my god this is like the exact scene in the wizard <laughs> so after we're done we're like should we watch the wizard yeah and it's basically a giant commercial for nintendo but i don't care <laughs> it's just like it, it actually surprisingly <laughs> held up for me like it's actually an engaging movie that's not terrible <laughs> like it didn't have the best reviews or anything but i'm like no this this holds up i care about these characters i'm totally on this journey Uh, So I was very surprised at how watchable that was. So go watch High Score and then watch The Wizard immediately afterward and it will blow your mind. Amazing. (laughs) That's really funny.
1: Michael, what are you watching?
2: So I recently
0: revisited The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And Mm -hmm. I did so for uh, my uh, appearance, my guest appearance on our good friend John Eastridge's show Missing Frames that we have now all been on multiple times where (laughs) you go and... Thus far, it had been, he makes me watch a movie that I haven't seen before, uh, which was The Exorcist. Yes, which was actually not that bad ultimately, but I was apprehensive going into it. So for this one, this was like the one David Fincher film he hadn't seen. And it's kind of culturally known as like the bad David Fincher film. And I've, I've always liked it. I've never upheld that it's a perfect movie by any means, but it's one of those things where... I feel like I watch it and have an experience and then I hear from other people that watched it and I'm thinking like, did we watch the same movie? Like, why do people hate this so passionately? Anyway, so it was a very uh, cathartic conversation, I will say, that I had with Sean uh, and it was cool to have him go into the movie with an open mind and talk about it and all the themes that it explores and why I think it's really special in the Fincher filmography and like I was basically trying like not to cry the whole time. So like it was wow. a really enjoyable, cathartic, emotional conversation for me anyway. So we'll we'll have the link to that in the show notes. But
3: well that you yeah. made me want to watch the movie again just so I can listen to your podcast.
0: I feel like we should have a conversation about the themes that explores and and kind of frame it a little bit and then go and revisit it. Oh, it has to be framed
3: before I can watch it.
1: Apparently. <laughs>
0: I don't think you have to, uh, but right. I think it. I think it helped. I think it helped Sean. I think. I think the way we we talked about it before he went and watched it on the show kind of helped. Okay, so you groomed uh, him experience. to like it. No, not at all. I think I. I think I groomed him to have an open mind.
2: Cool, which I think is important. Huh. That's good. Also, Panic Room is the bad David Fincher movie.
1: I love, I love Panic Room. Panic Room. <laughs> Brian, it's so much fun all right uh, <laughs> more conversations about bad david fincher movies if they exist do they exist stay tuned everybody
0: <laughs> well this has been our conversation about stranger things beyond the screenplay is produced by vince major our editor is eric schneider i've been joined today by the lessons from the screenplay team trisha arand brian bittner and alex calleros i am michael tucker you can find all of our twitter handles in the show notes feel free to reach out and say hello. Thank you to all the patrons who support the show and make it possible. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.